So we ended off yesterday saying how the Maskilim informed on the Tzemach Sedek to the authorities for the fifth time, causing him a lot of suffering. Now at that time, the Tzemach Sedek said to his son, the Rebbe Marash, he said, on Rosh Hashanah 60 years ago, this is 1798, while under my grandfather's talis, I saw that he would suffer greatly. And Taka that year he was imprisoned for 53 days. But I didn't see the salvation, the Yeshua. And he said, obviously, probably because his freedom from imprisonment wasn't a complete geula. Because the fact, that, meaning he meant that we're still suffering from the oppressors. Now usually, this incomplete geula, when you say, oh, it wasn't a complete geula. Because the Alter Rebbe was arrested a second time and then he was released. Right? That's what it usually refers to. But here, the Tzemach Sadek was saying that although the Alter Rebbe was free twice from his accusers and the accusations, it was evident that the original Gazeta against Hasidus had never truly been uh, completely taken care of. That it had a new battle again, meaning with the, now we're dealing with the Maskilim. Moving on, this is going to be a very cool part. In general, tzaddikim are capable, if they're a true tzaddik, they're capable of doing nisim. But Hasidus teaches us that you have to live in the world and you have to elevate it. And you do this, you don't rely on miracle. A miracle is, is basically not, it's not helping you do what you need to do. So we're not pro-miracles and things like that. Fakirs, we want to work on the world to change things up. Nevertheless, you know, sometimes a miracle is the only thing that could help. And, and um, sometimes that's all the only thing that, that, that Sadiqim could do to help the situation. So now we're going to be talking about miracles that the Tzemach Sadiq did to battle the officials that, that he had to deal with. So we're going to be going a little bit backwards in time, um, the different officials throughout this whole period. So... That we know that Samach Sadek didn't really want to participate in the conference of 1843, the first big one that we spoke about. But he went to the conference anyway, and he responded to the issues that were being discussed by the government ministers. His determination and willingness to, to be Meiser Nefesh for the sake of, of even a Jewish minog, it was helpful, and the ministers were convinced to push off the Xadis. In the end, he didn't have to do any open miracles, at least, to, to, to change things. And although you could argue that one individual, that's a Mahsadek, defeating the Tsar, that itself is miraculous, but it wasn't a revealed miracle. Right? At, at, at the end of the day, everything was in the confines of nature, that it was all natural what was going on. However, there were times when the Tzemach Tzedek had to use the power of Tefillah and Torah, either Torah meaning saying my Marim, as we're going to see soon, uh, to overcome the enemies. And he recognized that in certain situations, if, if the dangerous gazeta is hanging over the, 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 the Yidin, it was so great that the only way to protect the Jewish people was from using a nace, so that's what he'll do. So as it's known, on the first night of Rosh Hashanah, the Rabbeim were extremely careful not to talk at all. Like, I, I don't even think they would learn. It would just be for davening and, and saying Tehillim, and that's it. However, there were years when the Tzemach Tzedek broke this rule of not talking. And he would discuss 
the first night of Rosh Hashanah, he would start schmoozing about politics that are going on, this minister in Petterburg and that minister in Petterburg, not something you would normally discuss on the first, imagine if by the Rosh Hashanah table, the first night, you're going, oh, and this person in Washington, and that, that's what you're talking about in Rosh Hashanah? Right, so, when, when this, whenever this happened, his son, the Maril, Rabbi Hudaleib of Kapus, so he, whenever this happened, he would say, oh, Tati must be arranging the ministers, meaning, doing stuff to them, whatever needs to be done. Now, one of these occasions was the night of Rosh Hashanah. It was the year after, the first Rosh Hashanah after um, the, the 1843, the, the conference. And when the Tzemach Sadek discussed certain ministers in uh, very great detail, the following morning, before he started saying the Psukim, before blowing the Shefer, the Tzemach Sadek extended the time, like, like he was thinking for a long time before saying the Psukim, and suddenly he, he, he screamed out loud, he goes, I give out! Serce! Serce is the Russian word for my heart. And then he started saying Lam Natseyach, right? Lam Natseyach, Livnei Koydach, Mizmar, all the psukim before Kishafer. And hearing this cry, Samach Sadek screaming, I give out! Like, I Like, we need to be terrified. And people started crying. Mamish doing tshuva from, from, from the depths of their hearts. And they all realize that the Rebbe is begging Hashem's mercy to get rid of some really harsh gazeta that's going on. Some weeks later, the following story comes to Lubavitch. Minister Suverin, who was the minister in charge of the capital city of Petterburg, he hated the fact that the Yidin, and even many Goyim, that they respected it's a Tzemach and he couldn't stand it. And he was especially angered by the power and influence that he had. The Rebbe's success in the, in the conference made him a hero for the entire Jewish people. And the Tsar, even after the conference, the Tsar gave him the title of honored citizen. Right? What, what kind of thing is this? So Jewish communities throughout Russia were now turning to him in their, in their, in their times of need. And the, the minister didn't know what to... How to, how to take away this influence. So after a bit of uh, thinking about it, he came up with this brilliant idea. You can't imprison the Tzemach Sedek as a criminal. The Tsar personally honored him. Can't do that. Um, so what do we, if we can't imprison him, we just have to remove him from the rest of the Yidin. How are we going to do that? The government would ask him, ask meaning ask but force, right, to settle in the capital city of Petersburg, or maybe in the very far city of Kiev, where most Yidin were not allowed to live. And the, officials, the official reason would be that, oh, the officials want to be able to discuss things with him about the, the Yidin of Russia on a constant basis. We don't want to have to keep calling you back and forth. But the true purpose was that he wouldn't be able to have contact with the rest of the Yidin. And acting on this plan, Minister Suverin wrote up an official gazera and arranged an appointment with the Tsar. And the meeting was scheduled to take place the morning of Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Even before the meeting began, the minister was already congratulating himself, convinced uh, that there's no way the Tsar is going to say no to this. Because at the end of the day, the Tsar might have given the Tzemach Sedek, this title of honored citizen, but he knew that the Tsar hated the Tzemach Sedek. So, 
he was confident that the Tsar would sign this, demanding that uh, Rabbi Yishnerson should move to either Petersburg or Kiev. And presenting it to the Tsar, that's just uh, uh, finishing the finishing touches. But every, uh, he's so sure this is going to pass. Now, he didn't know about this at the time, but the Tsar was super angry at him. Why? Because not connected to the Samasadek at all, or Yidin in Russia, so there was a bunch of uh, uh, like mini gazeras, things like, like rules and regulations that this minister, Suverin, uh, he passed on the citizens of Petersburg. So for example, just to name one, in order to beautify the city, to make the city more beautiful, um, now the problem is in those days, everybody would smoke, right? And when, what are you doing when you're done by, towards the end? Throw it on the floor. The streets were littered with these pieces of cigarettes all over the place. And it didn't look nice. So the minister said, from now on, you're not allowed to smoke in public. You want to smoke? You go inside. Now it's, now it's the opposite. Yeah. Now you're not allowed to smoke indoors, right? If you want to smoke, you go inside your house. You go somewhere else. You go in this. No, this way there's nothing. Streets are nice and clean. And that would help get rid of the problem. So the, the, the pro why was the Tsar angry about this? Because this made the entire city of Petersburg angry. And when they're angry, who are they angry at? The Tsar. So he's like, I didn't do this. that guy, right? So he, he comes into the Tsar's room and the Tsar asks him how everything's going. He replies, oh, everything's going as planned. And although he was aware that there's some resistance from the citizens, that they're not too happy about this, he thought it better if he doesn't tell the Tsar this. Now, the Tsar knew about it already. Uh, the Tsar was always scared of rebellions and things like that. So he got so angry at Suvarov that he tried to lie to him. Right here. I know that the Tsar's like, I know that people are not happy. And you're trying to make it sound like, oh, everything's beautiful and great. So he said, I was informed of your new gazetas and the people are furious. And the minister starts stuttering, trying to explain his reasoning for this gazera, for, for, the, for the rules about the, the cigarettes and all that stuff. And um, the, the, as soon as he starts trying to uh, explain it, the czar's patience ran out. And he shouts at him. He goes, idiot! And he grabs the document with, with, for the Altarebbe, the Tzemach the, the, the document, right, that he has to move. And he throws it down to the floor. Now the minister leaves the room humiliated and defeated because there was an, like an official rule that if the Tsar threw any proposal away, it's automatic, not only does it not pass, you're never allowed to present it again. So it's one thing if the Tsar says, I don't like it, and then he gives it back to him, All right? So you try again another year, but he threw it on the floor. You can never try to pass this thing again. And his plan was shattered, right? And now the Tsar could live wherever he wanted to. So, remember, this story only came a few weeks later to, to, to Lubavitch. So when they heard that, the Hasidim now understood the Rebbe's unusual conduct on Rosh Hashanah of that year. And they were thankful for Hashem that, that he did not allow this thing to pass. However, the danger of the Tzemach Sadek being permanently separated from the Hasidim wasn't over. He sensed that the ministers would try to prove that he had too much power over the Yidin in Russia. And they would come up with another plan to stop him. So that's one of the reasons why he announced that year that no one's allowed to come to Lubavitch. 
for the next six months. In Lubavitch as well, there was very high tensions. Um, so we said this earlier, the, the Rebbe said a mimer, usually the Rebbe said a mimer every single Shabbos, he said six mimer from Rosh Hashanah to Pesach. Total. When normally he would have said one every week. And the government spies reported that for all these months, there was like no one coming to Lubavitch. Clearly the Tzamaq Tzedek doesn't have as much influence as we thought. Um... Right? And, oh, we don't have to force him to move. Um, a few weeks after Pesach, some Parshish Emmer, the Rebbe said a mimer, and he quoted a medrash about Malach Machol, uh, crying about how powerful Esav was becoming. And when he finished the mimer, he, 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 with Hashem's reply, that he, meaning Esav, our enemies, will elevate himself to a very high place, and that will cause him to fall. And the Hasidim understood that by saying the Mimer, the Rebbe was somehow getting rid of the plans of the opponents. And seeing that the danger was finally over, the Hasidim decided that the day of Lag Boimer, which was a few days away, would be an appropriate time to celebrate the occasion. And they all gathered openly in the field, and they fabrained for two full days, as they had been able to do previously when, when he was in no danger. And their happiness was complete when the Rebbe himself showed up at the, at the Ferbengen saying a mimer. Another incident, the Rebbe using a nace. The Rebbe, uh, this took place in uh, 1855. So Tsar Nikolai was becoming very angry at the fact that the Tzemach Tzedek was constantly battling against uh, and, and, uh, his wishes, that the Yidin should assimilate and convert. So the Tzemach Tzedek's success in this was evident from the fact that even soldiers who were in the army for many years and had no contact with other from Yidin, when the Tsar tells them to convert, they say, no way. And, and as we said the story earlier, right, that the Tsar himself personally went and he told a bunch of them to convert. And they said, we heard from the Tzadik of Lubavish that it's better to give up your life than convert. And they all jumped into the sea and, and they all drowned. And, and this is making him angry. Now, it's known that the Tsar said to his uh, inner circle, like his top uh, advisors at that time, he said, when I'm finished with this war, remember we said he was in the middle of the Crimean War, I'm going to take care of Rabbi Schneerson. And around that time, the Rebbe said a mimer. And not long afterwards, it was announced that Tsar Nikolai had died. Similar to the Rebbe's hurrah mimer, right? The, 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 that story with the mimer? With the, the Rebbe killed Stalin. Right? So it's a similar thing. Right? The, the, the Tzemach Sadeh killed Tsar Nikolai. The Rebbe killed Stalin. Um, so we're now going to move on to the, the study, like, like how, how much the Tzemach Sadeh used to study. So as his family grew, right, every room in the house eventually became occupied. At one point, the Tzemach Sadeh needed a larger room, and he wanted to switch his room with a, with a bigger one. And each and every one of his children was, was ready to give up his claim on his particular room. The Tzemach Tzedek wanted it to be with a full heart, and not just, oh, you're doing it because your father says to do it, or your Rebbe says to do it. And he wanted them to realize that they would be receiving something far greater, a far greater value. So let's say one of the sons had a bigger room than him, and the son said, hey, Tati, I'll switch rooms with you. 
So you get a bigger room. So you inform them that uh, what they would be receiving in return for switching rooms. So he says, in this room, the room that you'll be switching to, I learned 18 hours a day. So this gives us some idea of how much he would learn. Um, and it can be seen most clearly during the Nesias of the Mittler Rebbe. So the Rebbe writes in Ayem Yoyim that during the 14 years of the Mittler Rebbe's Nesias, that Tzemach Tzedek locked himself in his study room for many hours a day and just learned straight without stopping. Um, so we already know from earlier that uh, when he, when, when the time of the Tzemach, in, in the times of the Alter Rebbe, that he would learn his daily, he had a daily learning session with the Alter Rebbe, and he would spend the next six hours afterwards reviewing what they learned together. Um, and he would first review what they studied, and then he would start writing it down, and then he would put his own notes and things like that, questions, explanations. Um, and, and we also see from the, the amount of time he spent preparing the Alter Rebbe's Maimarim for print, um, he studied and worked on almost 2,000 Maimarim of the Alter Rebbe. 20 hours he spent on each and every Maimar. Each one for five hours a week, four weeks in a row. And each week he would learn the few Maimarim he was studying at home on a higher level. So in total, he spent 32,000 hours studying the Maimarim of the Alter Rebbe. Now, that does not include anything else that, of course, he was learning. Gemara, Halacha, things like that. Um, the, the, he, he worked the same, with the same uh, strength and Kayach. He worked the same thing on Gemara and Halacha. Um, so he, he, he wrote like a note to himself, basically. Um, he listed many of the commitments that he, that he took upon himself. And one of them was to learn six hours of Nigla every night while standing. Later he mentioned that this Hachlata enabled him to review the entire Shas with all the major Mepharshim, as well as the entire Shulchan Aruch, which allowed him to have a major understanding in every single section as it applied to Halacha. Um, so, a typical day would begin with uh, an explanation on, on uh, the, the, the Chumash of that day. And he had these notebooks that he would just write nonstop in. And the next few pages would contain a review of a halacha, followed by a mimer on Tehillim. And then he would have some thoughts on Medrash, Gemara, and he would do the same thing the following day. Day after day, week after week, month, until years followed. Um, unfortunately, we don't have most of these writings. Um, it's a very sad thing. He also wrote an entire huge safer on the Aguna uh, problems that were going on at the time. So the reason we don't have most of these things anymore is because of fires that took place in Lubavitch 
throughout the years. Um, like the entire Sefer on Agunos, we don't have any of it, which is very sad. Because we have, let's say, Shal Sechulis of the Tzemach Sedek, but that's, that's a tiny, tiny amount of what he really wrote. I'm talking about Halacha Shilas. So it's, a, it's one of those unfortunate things, obviously, in Shemayim. Uh, yeah, there's not much uh, to do about it. So we're actually up to there now, about the a fire in Lubavitch. Um, the Tzemach Sedek was able to, uh, to contain the fires of the Maskilim, but he was unable to stop an actual fire, which caused him a tremendous amount of pain. The houses in Lubavitch, as well as in, in almost every other town in Russia, were made of wood. When one house caught fire, usually it spread very quickly until the, the whole block burned down. Right? That, that's how it would work, unfortunately. And the houses of the Rabbein were no exception, and they too burned down in several fires throughout the years. And among them, there's one fire that stands out known as the Devastating Fire. So this fire occurred sometime during the years of uh, 1858, 1859, like Mamish, towards the end of the Tzemach Tzedek and it burned down every house in the Rebbe's courtyard. However, it wasn't the, the loss of a house that distressed the Tzemach Tzedek, uh, because he understood that nothing, not even a fire, happens by chance. Obviously, there was a reason for this fire. It's because Hashem decreed it. So that's not what bothered him. What bothered, what did bother him, was the personal loss of the vast majority of his writings and manuscripts in Nigla and Hasidus that were destroyed. Um, he was especially distressed that among those things that were burned, so the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch is missing uh, Simonim, many. And he completely rewrote all the missing things to fit it in, basically. And that was all gone, burnt. There was also a two, that we mentioned this, or the, the, a 2,000 page, uh, 2,000 pages that he wrote on the halachas of an aguna. And he said, I, I, he says, I'm too old, I can't just rewrite everything and start again. That's not going to happen. Um, and it's not just a loss, it's a personal loss, it's a loss for the entire Jewish nation. Could you imagine if we would have all these things? It would, it would help out so much. So the local pirates, he immediately informs the Rebbe's household that um, very nicely, right? he said, you use one of my houses on the outskirts of the town and um, you could use the whole building complex until, until everything's rebuilt. And it was a very spacious, very large house. Um, but the Hasidim noticed that even though there was a fire and a lot of stuff was burnt, he was very good spirits throughout that year. And he said a lot more Hasidic than usual. Now, since every house in the courtyard and the base medrash had all been destroyed, everything has to be rebuilt. So he says, listen, once we're rebuilding, let's build bigger. Right? So he basically increased the size of the base medrash in order to accommodate, uh, over the years, more and more people were becoming Hasidim of the Tzemach Sedek. So made it bigger and bigger. And as always, his sons eagerly did whatever they could to, to help their father. So each one participated in the project of uh, rebuilding and expanding and whatever he was able to do. They also wrote letters to the Hasidim, asking them for help in regards to money. 
And the Rebbe Maharash, he was the one who took control over the construction project. When, when the base medrash and all their houses were finally completed a year later, uh, so sometime in 1860, the Tzemach and his family, they moved into the newly rebuilt houses, the new home, and he noticed some of the changes had been made, and he asked, oh, who built such large windows? Right? This is the story we wrote in the, right? So, the Rebbe Marash said, so why, he's asked, why, why are the windows so big? He says, so that it should be lichtig, we want it to be bright. So, the Tzemach Tzedek said, however, in the house of their Zayda, right, the Alta Rebbe, the windows were small. And the Rebbe Marash says, so it wasn't so bright. And the Tzemach Tzedek said, by Zayda, it was lichtig, lichtig, extremely bright. However, as we're going to see from the following story, the Tzemach Tzedek was most probably not completely surprised and even expected that his son, the Rebbe Marash, would uh, build the house with some changes. So years earlier, uh, a chassid wanted to express his appreciation to the Rebbe, to Tzemach Tzedek, and he bought him a nice expensive winter carriage and he brought it to Lubavitch to give to the Rebbe as a gift. And when he brought it to the Rebbe's house, he said to the Rebbe that he wants to give it as a gift to him. And the Tzemach said, give it to my son, the Rebbe Shmuel, because he has a use for it. I don't need these things. I'm going to keep using my same plain one. So anyways, even during all the craziness because of the fire moving out of his house, right? he's, he's still there for all the Yiddin. For example, shortly after the fire, he established a society to provide clothing for needy people, poor people. And this, this society continued all the way until World War I. And then it had to stop because of the, the, the Meshigas involved. Um, it wasn't just the Yidin and Lubavitch that he actively helped. In, in 1859, the Goyim of Odessa convinced the local governor to make uh, Gezaitis against the Yidin and kick them out of the city. And they turned to the Tzemach Tzedek to help them. And since the Rebbe wasn't able to travel to Petterburg, to speak to the officials. So he sent the Rebbe Marash instead. Four months later, after speaking to as many officials as possible, the Rebbe Marash was successful in his mission and the Yidin were allowed to return to their homes in Odessa. Um, nevertheless, the, the governor wouldn't, uh, didn't want to stop his campaign against the Yidin and he started charging them crazy taxes. And those who didn't pay these taxes uh, faced imprisonment. And even though the situation was uh, uh, continued after the Rebbe Tzinchai Mushka was nostalgic, when basically the, the Tzimach Selik stopped giving a chiddus after that, the Rebbe continued to be there for them by, by supplying them with financial assistance to help, to help them pay all these crazy taxes. And we'll end over there for today.